Hello and welcome to Plan Francisco, the new podcast that interviews the best and brightest financial planning professionals in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Maxwell Schmitz. I need a plan, a magic key. Hello and welcome to Plan Francisco. I'm your host, Maxwell Schmitz, and today we have the privilege of speaking with Gerard Kambikian. Gerard is a brilliant mind in the business of financial planning. He's an expert on equity ownership and stock options, the FIRE movement, and other trends that attract younger workers. And finally, he's proposing a fee-only model that truly stands to further enhance the scope of the term fiduciary. I am super excited to have him here today with you. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Gerard Kambikian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Max. Glad to be here. So I always like to get a feel for where you're coming from and what your background has been. So can you give us a little um, a little more information about how you got your start into the world of financial planning? Sure. So I was always one of those uh, nerdy kids who considers myself very lucky in the sense that I always knew what I wanted to do from the very beginning. Um, so that started right after high school where I uh, was working at one of the larger banks. and. While I was there, I was really learning how just the banking system worked and really how to deal with retail customers from that sense. Mm -hmm. And it was also great because they paid for me to go to school. So I stuck around there. And throughout that time, uh, both friends and coworkers were starting to come to me with what I consider now just basic financial planning questions, ranging from how to allocate their 401k or maybe some cash flow or budgeting issues or maybe some savings issues and starting to dabble a little bit in investments as well. So I really began to get a a bigger interest in financial planning in general. I didn't even know what it was called at that time. Mm -hmm. But I also started talking to the investment associate who was in that office through that five years I was there. And I was there through uh, 2008 and nine, interesting (laughs) time. So throughout my, my tenure at this bank, I saw seven different folks rotate through that one office. Oh, wow. So while I knew I wanted to do financial planning, I knew I didn't want to do it at a larger institution like I was at, simply because of, number one, the turnaround, um, number two, how different the processes were from what I envisioned my practice to be. Mm. So uh, fast forward, I, I graduate, and I started looking at independent financial planning firms. And I ultimately landed at a smaller uh, financial planning firm in San Francisco, and they were attached to a uh, broker-dealer and also had an insurance arm. Mm -hmm. And I was there for four and a half, five years roughly, Mm -hmm. and I really began to uh, learn everything there as far as uh, comprehensive financial planning, which is what we were focusing on. Yes, it was a little bit more geared towards the uh, broker-dealer world and the insurance world, but nonetheless, I got a real good footing in just what comprehensive financial planning is all about. Mm -hmm. And through there, I also started to uh, really just gather clients, start building my practice. And that's that's how I got started in this world. So that that leads us directly to the next question, which is um, how has all of that, I mean, the experience at the bank um, and through that broker-dealer platform, how has that all combined to help you find your footing for your new firm, Citrine Capital? Yep, great question. So number one, it was great because all of the clients that I brought on board at the previous firm, mm-hmm. we were able to, to bring on to the new firm. So That's right excellent. away, that was such a, a blessing because it allowed us to launch the firm. And when I say us, um, 
at the previous firm, I met Ryan, and we shared an office together for about two years. Mm. Got along super well, and he actually went on his own and launched what is now Citrine Capital. Oh, okay. And that was 2014. Mm. And over the next year or so, he just basically was poking me, mm-hmm. saying, hey, I'm doing well, starting to get busier and busier. Mm-hmm. Come on board. Nice. And me being the analytical person I am, <laughs> um, I started taking it more and more seriously every time we had lunch together, for example, and we used to see each other often because we were still good friends. So I started to think about it more and more, saying, hey, is this what's best for myself, Mm -hmm. my practice, and my clients? And January 1, 2016 is when we officially joined forces. We rebranded his firm because it was under his name previously. Mm. And we rebranded it as Citrine Capital, became 50-50 partners, and have been growing ever since. So can you tell us a little bit more about the vision or the mission of Citrine and what opted you guys out of that broker-dealer model? Excellent question. So really the the goal that's always been driving us forward and something that we've been trying to progress towards almost on a uh, weekly or or monthly basis, we, we often focus on this where Initially, it was all about the uh, transparency of fees and just the broker-dealer world being more so on the commission side. Mm -hmm. And we felt like the conflicts of interest were were there, especially in some cases. And we weren't always able to put our clients first, ahead Mm -hmm. of our own interests. Mm -hmm. So that was really the main uh, philosophies that we created to train around is total transparency of fees Mm -hmm. and operating under the fiduciary standard of always doing what's in the client's best interest ahead of our own. Perfect. Now, taking a a step further from there, we are always trying to achieve what we call the most ethical, transparent, and conflict-free advice. Mm -hmm. And that is, has been something that we've progressed more and more towards. So for example, we first under the brokerage and insurance world were under the commission model. Then we moved under the uh, no commissions, but we moved under the assets under management model. Mm-hmm. And now we're moving into something what we consider even further, uh, progressing the ethical transparency. That's awesome. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, before we met today, you had mentioned that you were interested in pursuing a new type of fee model. So can you give us an overview of of maybe just the evolution of how you got to this point? Sure. So there's, there's really three realms to that conversation. There yeah. is the uh, commission world, which has really been around since the dinosaurs were. Right. So that is derived from the, the brokerage world and also the insurance world where it was largely uh, built upon, I represent a company or the best companies and in, in order to uh, help you, this is what I can help you with. So essentially you're buying a product, mm-hmm. good or bad. There's obviously some good products out there, but that's what it's all about is representing a specific product. And as a result, you get a commission from that. Mm-hmm. Um, about 20 years ago, the AUM or assets under management model started to gain traction where it went a step further from there. Starting from just product, now it's all about under the AUM model, asset allocation mm-hmm. where, hey, we have not only products, but we'll help you implement a more 
personalized plan, if you will, around your goals and risk tolerance, specifically on the investment side. Mm -hmm. Now, that is something that we were operating under um, for a, a number of years since Sutrine's creation. But again, we felt like there were still some conflicts of interest because, for example, if you are, if we are managing a pool of money as far as investments go, and a client wants to buy a home or some other variation of, of that, essentially taking out funds from the investment management that we manage mm -hmm. and moving it somewhere where we don't manage and don't get compensated, mm -hmm. while we are legally and ethically fiduciaries, it can be seen that, hey, you're not getting paid, therefore that might be influencing your recommendation. So, uh, pending state approval, of course, Ryan and I have been discussing the next stage to this, where we consider it a flat fee based on net worth. Mm -hmm. So we have a, on the new fee schedule, a minimum and a maximum. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be based on tiers, based on what your net worth are. Mm -hmm. So there would not be any conflicts if you're moving funds from bucket A to bucket B, because we are advising on the whole picture versus just what we're getting paid on. Mm -hmm. I love this idea. It's, I think where a lot of people, and you've sort of underscored this, but uh, I just want to make sure it was especially noted, is that a lot of fee-only models are geared towards retaining assets. And there are other options from what I've seen in the field, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it can make sense for somebody to put a significant pot of money into fund maybe an annuity or even like a long-term care hybrid policy, single premium style where you're putting in six figures, but that's detracting from that assets under management. So whether they like it or not, there's a conflict of interest there for somebody who's on the typical AOM fee model to retain those assets. And I know this is still standing, you know, pending state approval, but um, I just think it's really visionary what you guys are doing because nobody's talking about that in, in this model currently. It's it's certainly a lot less common. The AOM is is king in our world as far as just purely popularity. Right. But we feel this is the future. We also feel from purely a ethical standpoint, which is the main reason we're doing this, that it's the most appropriate. So, mm -hmm. for example, on certain asset levels based on our current fee schedule, our current AOM fee schedule versus the new proposed fee schedule, the new schedule is sometimes a fifth of the cost. Wow. And that is wildly less expensive, um, much more uh, cost-effective for clients because we cannot justify those five times higher fees. Right. We just can't. And we don't know how anyone else can justify it either. And we can still be very, very profitable earning the under the new fee schedule. Mm -hmm. And we truly feel that is the most ethical standpoint to take with clients and saying, yeah. this is how much we would charge on our current or hopefully old fee schedule. And this is probably what most advisors are going to charge because yeah. it's pretty much an industry standard at this point. Right. And this is how much we would be charging on the, the newer fee schedule. And we mm -hmm. believe this is also conflict free. Right. And so in the interest of ethical transparency, I mean, I know that's a definitely a, a mission of yours. Can we get into the weeds a little bit as to what those fee schedules kind of look like just to give a listener a, a point of view? Absolutely. A little bit more perspective. So 
It's my understanding that most um, AUM firms or assets uh, firms that charge based on an assets under management, they'll charge any range up to maybe like 1% or even higher in some cases, I'm sure. But um, let's just say 1% for the sake of argument. Um, So if you have, you know, $100,000 in assets, I know it's usually more, uh, they would be, you know, charging a fee of $1,000. So that, in an instance like that, I mean, you're looking at a larger portfolio of assets if you're encompassing all net worth. So how does that schedule um, sort of mitigate that higher number? Clearly, if you guys are charging less, it's going to be less than that 1% fee. Is that right? Yep. So we do have a minimum fee schedule. We've always had a minimum. Currently, it is at 4200 a year. Uh-huh. Under the new fee schedule, the, the minimum would actually be higher. Okay. So that is, is solely for the sense that we are doing so much more work than the 4200 that we're currently charging. Right. That we needed to have the minimum be at a point where we're able to service the new clients that we're bringing on board, which have increasingly more complex situations than our current clients do. Right. And to be clear, you're not charging 4200 for somebody who's, you know, maybe got 400,000 in assets necessarily or even 100,000 in assets. It's going to be, you know, somebody who has significantly more net worth, correct? Right. As a fiduciary and and CFPs, Ryan and I have to do what we consider is appropriate. Right. So, if someone comes in who truly does not have the complexity for what we are charging, mm-hmm. we are either uh, going to recommend additional or further actions mm-hmm. re- regarding maybe we're not the best fit mm. or we're going to say this is the value that we would be bringing to the table and we do consider this even though you fall under the minimum uh, level of assets we do consider this a, a truly valuable uh, experience for bo- both of us mutually okay perfect that's very cool so I have to imagine you guys are working with a younger natural market. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you're seeing and what strategies you're using? I know a buzzword right now is that fire movement. So I don't know if you want to get started there or just tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing. Sure. So the fire movement is actually one of our uh, newer trends that we've been helping folks with. But just to give an overview of the firm and types of folks that we're working with, we're working with primarily young tech professionals and startup business owners in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sure. And uh, no surprise, a a lot of these folks are very highly compensated. And a lot of them also either are sometimes burning out very quickly Mm -hmm. because of the pressure and stress that's as a result of them being highly compensated and the type of work they do. Mm -hmm. But also, some of them are starting to get concerned about what if this tech market doesn't last and continue indefinitely? Mm -hmm. Is my compensation going to continue at this pace? Mm. That's a concern. Um, Some folks are wanting to say, hey, I want to work for at this pace for the next two to five years, for example, and then maybe I'll take a step back and say I want to do something more rewarding. That might be as far as joining a nonprofit. It might be something that they want to start on their own. So many different variations that Mm -hmm. we've seen. But this all leads to the FIRE movement, which stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Now, I actually hate the acronym because, (laughs) well, I hate the last two letters. Retiring early does not resonate with me or really any of our clients Mm -hmm. because, as you may imagine, a lot of these folks are highly motivated. They're not really the type that just wants to 
uh, retire in the in the traditional sense and just sit on a beach, sitting uh, sipping drinks or mm -hmm. and playing golf all day. Not the picture at all. These folks still want to be busy with whatever they're doing in their life, whether they're earning income or not. Mm -hmm. So the movement is all about really two main things. It's it's one of the most simple uh, financial planning conversations that we've actually had, where it's all about living frugally, mm -hmm. which re uh, leads to just reducing expenses as much as possible, mm -hmm. and also increasing your savings. Mm -hmm. So that's a factor of two things, really. How much money do you need to be able to really not work mm -hmm. or make income not a necessity? And if that's the extreme side, maybe we're replacing half your income today mm -hmm. or a fraction of your income today. So it's all about saving enough to be able to produce income to replace some of your some of your expenses. Perfect. Very good. And so, how uh, how are you helping some of these people reduce expenses, especially in the Bay Area? Here, are there any go to strategies that you've seen? Um, you know, this is one of the the most important areas of financial planning, and I know some folks might hate to hear this, but the reality is this is what financial planning is all about and it's by far the, the simplest part of it mm -hmm. is cash flow and budgeting. Mm -hmm. And we see folks who are very highly compensated and are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And we see folks who are making fractions of what those, those guys are but are saving at a very healthy rate and still enjoying life and, and living the lifestyle they want. So to get back to your question, it all has to start somewhere. And what we're really trying to achieve is for someone, for example, who isn't uh, saving a healthy amount and, and is living paycheck to paycheck, it has to be baby steps. We're gonna take a look at their cash flow initially, just income minus expenses, and we're gonna start identifying a couple areas. And we're, uh, with some folks, we are really hands-on about the expenses. Some folks really prefer just to know the total picture and say, I'll handle it myself. Mm -hmm. So it really depends, but uh, dining out, for example, is probably the number one most common area that is the highest and is also easiest to improve should you want to, mm -hmm. and also can make the biggest impact on your overall expenses. There you go. So you also identified company equity as another area of expertise. Can you explain the benefits of working with a professional when it comes to this subject and maybe offer some tips about what you see out there, both right and wrong, from a financial planning perspective? This is a big one. So this is actually the, uh, the niche that Ryan and I set forward with when we created Citrine. And it, it basically fell into our lap because as we were working in the Bay Area with clients, no surprise, a lot of folks have these uh, issues and planning that's required around this company equity. And that ranges from RSUs to ESPP, uh, incentive stock options, non-qualified stock options, uh, founder stock. There's so many different varieties of what's out there. and. If you don't know the intricacies on each of those compensation schedules and the way they work, just down to how the taxes work versus is this something that you have to exercise or does it vest automatically or is it yours automatically, 
um, how, do the, how's the, how does the selling on it work? Mm-hmm. Does it make sense to exercise and hold it versus exercising and selling it? Mm-hmm. How do you operate within trading windows? Because a lot of these companies have restrictions on when and if you can sell certain shares. Um, what about when a private company is going public and it IPOs and then the employees are usually not able to sell uh, before six months of the IPO. So that's an additional planning hurdle that we're going to be talking about. And there's so many different factors here. And perhaps one of the more interesting from a purely financial sense is a lot of these folks that are receiving company equity are, from a purely salary perspective, undercompensated. Hmm. So they're getting a lower base salary than they would if they were at a let's say more stable company or a public company but they're almost uh, counting on these these uh, stock options or company equity and that kind of ties into the next point which is the emotional side of Mm. all this Mm. and this is by far the most difficult part about working with folks who do have company equity Mm. we kind of see two extremes and only two extremes there's often not many folks in the middle here. So on one extreme, you have folks who are thinking their company is the next unicorn, Mm -hmm. where they are told, and they they truly are drinking from the Kool-Aid, where all of these companies are no surprise. Their executives are saying, the future looks bright, we're very optimistic, we're growing, things are going well, we're gonna IPO at some point, and you're gonna be a millionaire, right? That's the message from every single company. And what do statistics tell us? That most startups fail. Right. Right. But you're never going to hear a company executive talking to the employees saying, hey, it's looking gloomy out there. We're doomed. (laughs) We don't know what we're doing. We have no more funding coming in. That only comes about when they already are aware, when the employees are already aware Sure. that's the case, right? right? So no surprise, they're all hearing the most optimistic news that they're going to be at the next Facebook, they're going to be at the next Google, um, Apple, Amazon, whatever. So how do you help someone who is so uh, closely guarding selling or diversifying out of these positions, these concentrated positions? while also trying to make the rest of the plan work because they are uh, undercompensated in comparison to what they may be receiving elsewhere. That's one extreme. (laughs) On the other extreme, we have folks who are uh, very, very aware of what the risks are around overconcentration. Because truthfully speaking, most of these folks are having most of their net worth in one company. Mm And even if it's the best company, we don't advise that for just a variety of reasons, of course. Not to mention the heavy ties of their real estate to this tech sector and everything else that kind of goes into just living in this general area. Exactly. Exactly. invested. So on extreme two, we're trying to help folks who are wanting to diversify maybe even quicker than we recommend sometimes Mm -hmm. and are just so gung-ho about getting out as soon as possible that they may be missing additional opportunities around maybe tax planning, Mm. trying to stagger it out over number of periods or even years, Mm. we recommend. And that's the the whole gist of of company equity where we're helping these folks 
who really just had a windfall and they were lucky to be completely honest because if you're joining at a stage where the company is so new you just cannot predict what will happen mm-hmm. even the most successful companies today their initial uh, mission or their initial objective of their company was so different than it is today so how can you truly know and it's all stacked against the employees mm-hmm. and it's it's such an emotional uh, conversation to have with folks. The math is very very easy once you've learned how to do it around <laughs> the company equity. But uh, motivating someone to diversify out of shares, or or do some combination of strategies that they feel is going to leave a lot on the table, right. is is difficult sometimes. Yeah, I once heard somebody say, you know, it with regard to company stock and equity, we're looking at. Um, a scenario where somebody doesn't want to give up their shares, but they're being confronted with the question of, well, essentially, if you had that amount of money that your shares are in right now, would you use that money to invest all of that into your company again? And I think very clearly the answer is going to be no for most people. But, you know, if you're drinking the Kool-Aid and you're, and you're at that level of indoctrination, I can see where the emotional aspect really kind of overwhelms the... Uh, the regular, um, you know, guiding principles there. That's actually a, a great uh, analogy to make there, Max, and I'm glad you did that because those are the types of questions that we're trying to ask folks mm-hmm. and really just give them food for thought, right? Right, Because we are there to help them with the most information they need around the situations that they have and to make the best decision possible. Mm-hmm. So this actually ties into the earlier conversation about the, the FIRE movement, for example. Mm-hmm. Let's say someone is sitting on a bunch of company equity and a bunch of company stock. How much money do they truly need to not work ever again based on their current lifestyle? Right. That is maybe the number one question to ask folks. And if you say, for example, hey, you have five million in, in this company, right? And if we diversified all of it, presumably, after taxes and everything else that needs to be sorted out, you're left with X. And if we planned appropriately, this would be able to replace your income indefinitely. Mm-hmm. And you and your future family and kids are set forever. So you would have the freedom of, of course, continuing to work if you truly enjoy what you do, or you're able to pursue other passions or spend more time with your family, hopefully, Mm -hmm. or a combination of of all of these things. Mm -hmm. Versus we don't diversify at the level that we are recommending and that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. And let's say worst case scenario, your company takes a, a nosedive and it's happened many, many times. Mm-hmm. It will still continue to happen many, many times. And that is, statistically speaking, the most likely reality. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't hope that's the case, but that's the conversation that we're having with folks. And when you put that into perspective, it's a very, very eye-opening experience because a lot of the folks who have never really uh, thought about the FIRE movement and, and know the mechanics around it are, are thinking they need 20 million or 30 million to retire indefinitely. Right. Whereas it's not the case. And the less 
uh, your expenses are and the more frugally you are willing and able to live, that number that you need becomes so much less and less. Interesting. Yeah, I love that context. So are there any other subjects where you see a lot of people needing guidance? I mean, we talked a lot about the um, just the aspect of living frugally, sometimes that emotional um, the emotional ties to company equity, anything else that you're seeing commonplace? Another big one that we are helping folks with is home buying. Mm. Now, no surprise, we're both in the Bay Area. Folks are very, very gung-ho about real estate and, and right. buying at least their first place. Mm-hmm. And we feel it's our ethical duty to have this conversation with folks because the reality is most of these folks cannot afford uh, the types of homes that they want without over-concentrating in one home right? and potentially jeopardizing their financial future as a result. Hmm. So what I mean by that is folks are coming in who have a pot of money as a down payment and savings. Often what we're seeing is they are willing to use 100% of that liquid non-retirement assets Mm -hmm. to the home and from a cash flow perspective we're seeing them basically maxing out their additional disposable income Mm -hmm. and maybe even future disposable income Mm -hmm. so people in those situations are forced to uh, become over concentrated with all of their assets in one home Mm -hmm. yes the barrier market has done well but it's one home. It's really no different than one stock, in our opinion, at least. <laughs> yeah. But on the other side, we do realize that it's equally so an, an emotional decision, mm-hmm. where you do want to have a place for yourself and your family and be able to do what you want with the home and, and raise your family there and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing that we are helping folks with initially, I would say. That's the number one trigger that we see. Folks either are planning to buy a home, they are very close to buying a home, or they just bought a home and now what do I do? Right, right, right. right. So it, it's very, very difficult in the barrier just because, as you're well aware, prices are astronomically high and sometimes they have to jeopardize what they want in a home to be able to still be financially even alive mm-hmm. or afloat. So that's the conversation that we're having with folks, and it's, it's a very difficult conversation sometimes because folks are coming in who are willing to do absolutely anything to buy a home, and then once they get in the home, they don't think about things like property taxes mm-hmm. or ongoing maintenance, which is unknown, or other variations of that which are just so variable there are all you know there are also people in that profession in the home sales and mortgage sales profession who are pretty tight-lipped about those sort of uh, issues as well that seem to come up so I think there's a lot of pressure from the other side to kind of realize those dreams and they're making the emotional sale whereas you know you're tasked with the sometimes unfortunate position of having to bring them back to reality you know, it's very funny in that sense. I, I once heard um, recently, actually, uh, an individual say and summarize the amount of money a bank is willing to loan out for a mortgage is their opinion of the maximum before you go bankrupt. That's disconcerting, to say the least. So they are willing to 
maximize on their profits, the banks. And as a result, the consumers, the, the clients here, are assuming the banks know what they're doing, right? Right? Because why wouldn't they? So the consumers are saying, hey, I got approved for a million mortgage, a million and a half mortgage, $500,000, whatever the number is. But they take that back and say, okay, this is my maximum. Mm-hmm. Not actually looking at the cash flow, mm-hmm. not necessarily even looking at their down payment funds and, and seeing what happens if I buy this home and in two or three months, there's some major situation where I need funds. Right. Or what happens with so many other things that you want to do with your life and are planning to do so, but you don't have the flexibility anymore. Mm-hmm. And that maybe is the number one theme that we always try to build into all of our plans and to help our clients with mm-hmm. is the flexibility. Because with flexibility comes the peace of mind that you are able to shift when things come up, not if things come up, mm-hmm. but when things come up. Yeah. As I'm sure you're well aware, things happen that are not in the plan. Mm-hmm. People get sick, people need funds to, to move in a different direction with their life. There's so many different combinations here where things don't go according to plan. And truthfully speaking, the plans that we put together or any person puts together are almost 0% accurate because there's no way you can account for things that come up. Right. This has been a great conversation. Is there anything else you want to let the audience know before we wrap up today? That's a great question. My personal opinion, your most valuable asset is your time. As you progress in your life, we believe that things are becoming more complex, not only from a purely financial perspective, but from a life perspective. You have kids, things are going on in their world, which only adds uh, a time constraint in your world, right? So we believe from a a financial planning sense, or really any uh, planning sense, we try to uh, free up time and peace of mind when it comes to someone's life in someone's world where if you're working with a financial planner or an accountant or someone on the insurance side or or estate side all of these folks we feel are are very necessary to free up as much time in your world Mm -hmm. so you can truly enjoy what you're wanting to do with your life and that's really what it's all about is living the life that you truly want to live Mm -hmm. and that's what we feel engages folks and motivates folks to to move forward in their world i love it So what's the best way for your fans to get in touch with you? The best way for folks to reach out is on our website, citrinecapitaladvisors.com, C-I-T-R-I-N-E. And on there is a way that you can request the meeting with us to see if we're a good mutual fit. Awesome. Gerard Kambikian, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate the time. It's been such a pleasure. And thanks for coming to Plan Francisco. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed. Please be sure to subscribe and visit us again soon here at Plan Francisco.